God Almighty, we come before you again this morning. We ask for your presence. We ask that you would join us here so that we would hear what you have to say and we would be shaped by it to become more and more the men and women of God you have created us to be. We love you, Jesus. Amen. I was 18 years old. I was in Cleveland, Ohio the first time I ate a Reuben sandwich. Yes, it was that good. Oh, I could still taste it. The hot beef and the warm sauerkraut. The Swiss cheese on rye. Hot, salty, thick steak fries. Pour that Thousand Island dressing down the toilet. Give me hot deli mustard. I mean, you know, guys got to have some health standards, you know. Another meal I ate with my dad was at this restaurant near my mom's house where we would go sometimes when he'd come pick me up. We're talking first grade-ish for me. We had this turkey sandwich, bean sprouts, tomato, and avocado. It's the first time I remember avocado really meaning something to me, which, of course, it still does. You know, and then there was the Burger King chicken sandwich. You know, remember the Burger King chicken sandwich before they absolutely ruined it when they also ruined their fries back in the late 90s? But there was El Burrito Verde, which was this little hole-in-the-wall Mexican joint that was on Santa Fe Springs Road as you're driving out towards Whittier. you got to understand Burritos are just Mexican sandwiches wrapped in perfection. Around here, the best sandwich joint on Mondays is Jersey Mike's. It's expensive, but there is not a bad sandwich in the joint. And of course, that means the best sandwich place, bar none, here in Santa Maria, California, is Papanopoli's. Their roast beef sandwich will be at the wedding supper of the Lamb, which is second to none except the chicken parmigiana, which is their best sandwich, unless, of course, I'm having their pastrami like Kevin and I did on Tuesdays. Oh, my goodness. I don't know why I do this to myself. I like sandwiches. But now, some of you are probably sitting here thinking, where is he going with this? Well, evidently, Mark liked sandwiches too. Several times in his gospel, he introduces a situation, and then he interrupts himself, and then he completes the thought. Now, sometimes he does this because he wants to have a sense of time passing. Sometimes he wants to heighten the tension in our minds, waiting to see what's going to happen in the narrative. Sometimes... He wants to draw a parallel between two different events so that we will notice something significant is happening. Today's sandwich is clearly the third kind. We will see Jesus' family of origin calling him out of his mind. And then right after that, the Jewish leaders are saying that he's demonized by Satan. We'll go back to Jesus' family. We'll see how wrong they are. And we'll see that those who hear his words and live by them are Jesus' closest 
family. There is a strong contrast Mark is making. And Jesus wants us to pay attention. We need to be willing to humble ourselves before the Son of God so that we will be His family. We will be close to Him. We are going to see today that we must, you must make yourself small to get close to Jesus. Mark begins with Jesus once again under stress. We pick it up at Mark 3, verse 20. Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Now apparently, the family thought that Jesus took too much on himself. They thought his propensity to overbook himself so much that he couldn't even eat meant that he was mentally imbalanced. Perhaps. Well, at least as far as the world is concerned. But then he takes that little teaser and Mark appears to drift back to the many various controversies we had just left in our reading of Mark, but which really never go away until he's murdered and resurrected. So let's read verses 22 to 30. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And Jesus called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Notice two important things are happening here. The enemies of Jesus accuse him of being demonized by Satan. Jesus responds with two answers. One, your accusation is absurd on the face of it. Satan is not going to fight Satan. But number two, Jesus says, you have crossed a line. Your persistent, defiant hostility to the work of God among you, the work that God is doing among you, is an unforgivable sin. Let's see how these things work out. We'll just pick up at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. Now, a very interesting note. And you would not have noticed this unless you did some study. Beelzebul is a name of Satan that is completely unheard of outside the Gospels. In other words... No one has ever used that name that we know of from any history books. Now that is solid evidence for an eyewitness. An eyewitness to this event 
is reporting what's happening. Why do I say this? No one who was making up this story would have used such an obscure name. They would not have gone to some backwater town in Judea or Galilee and picked that name. They simply would have said Satan or the devil and been done with it. But... If in the area that this actually happened, Beelzebul was a name that they used for Satan, but that name never got recorded in history, then we have a clear historic evidence that this, in fact, is an eyewitness account. You see, Mark tells it like it is. You can have confidence in the Word of God. It is not, as Peter says, a cleverly devised myth. You can bank on it. You can live by it because the biblical authors don't whitewash what happened to make the story easy, to make it believable. Now, also of interest here is that Jesus' opponents are making two related but distinct claims. Here it is. They're claiming that Jesus is demonized. And they're claiming that Jesus casts out demons by the power of a demon. Now, Jesus doesn't even address the first one. He just, that's absurd. But he hammers them on the second. We see this in verses 23 to 27. Jesus called them to him, and they said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now Jesus here gives a common sense explanation. Just like the U.S. Civil War of 1861 to 64, and it decimated our country, Satan fighting against himself, says Jesus, would likewise be to destroy his kingdom. Now here, we need to understand a couple of important things. Satan's kingdom, as opposed to Jesus's kingdom, is built on lies and hatred and destruction. Destruction of every institution. Destruction of the family. Destruction of the government. Destruction of itself. Jesus doesn't want, or Satan doesn't want Jesus to heal on the Sabbath or any other day. He also doesn't want Jesus to heal people today through you and me. So fight. Fight to bring healing to your near ones. Fight to bring healing to your near ones by loving them. Love is the joyful willingness to sacrifice for the good of those near you. Love is the joyful willingness to sacrifice for the good of those near you. One way to do this is to read good books, including the good book. And we do this so that we can reason. We do this so we can reason. We can 
talk to them logically so we can think about and speak about the world as it really is and reason about it along with a biblical lens. Satan does the opposite. Satan lies. Satan doesn't like reason because it proves him wrong. Satan builds his kingdom by gathering those who wish to build their own little kingdoms and therefore stand against Jesus. It's all lies. It's all small thinking. It's all ultimately irrational. So, love others by thinking with those who are near you. Now, Jesus admits He's reasoning with his enemies. And he admits, yes, I am in a battle against Satan. I attack Satan's kingdom, and his kingdom is taking the worst of it. (laughs) Praise Jesus. You see, Jesus goes in and he invades enemy territories. He invades the strong man's house. Satan is the strong man. And guess what? Jesus calls us to go into the strong man's house as well. To show where the strong man, Satan, is leading people in lies. But Jesus needs to bind the strong man. Satan must be bound by Jesus in order to rob Satan of his prey, which is you and me. You know, casting out of demons was almost unheard of in the Old Testament. But the church, following the example of Jesus right here and in other places, is, has been given the grace by God to do a supernatural work. As a side note, the casting out of demons here and the, and the binding which Jesus does of the strong man is not the binding to which Jesus, John refers in Revelation chapter 20, where Satan is bound for a thousand years and is cast into the pit. No, Not the same binding. That binding has obviously not happened because in the words of Todd Agnew in one of my favorite songs we sing, our cold and ruthless enemy, his pleasure is our harm. He loves to cause us harm. But Todd Agnew calls out and says, Rise up, O Lord, and he will flee before our sovereign God. How does he rise up? He rises up through us. Grace. You can take part in binding Satan by casting out demons, by loving your near ones so that they see it. Refuse to be petty or harsh. Refuse to fall prey to small thinking. Refuse to disbelieve that God is real and God is now. Now you and I may never be called on to literally cast out a demon as Jesus was doing. But if it happens, trust Him, trust Jesus, because Jesus is going to be the one doing the work anyway. And between now and then, between Now and any time you might in the future cast out a demon. Make yourself small. Don't make conversations about you. Don't make your Facebook posts about trying to lift yourself up. Instead, make yourself small. Get underneath their armor and plunder Satan's kingdom 
from those who just don't know any better. Because Satan lies. Satan wants to turn you away from God's Word. Satan wants you to pay attention to anything, everything else besides God's Word. And that is the kingdom that Jesus came to destroy by love. Jesus came to destroy Satan's kingdom by loving your near ones. By joyfully, willingly sacrificing for the good of those near you. So plunder away. Steal from Satan's kingdom at will. Call upon Jesus to bind the enemy by freeing your near ones. By loving them. Especially as you reason with them. As you think with them. On social media and even, you know, you can have conversations in person. But one thing is clear from these verses. If you are to get close to Jesus, if you are to be one of His family, then you will have to take your eyes off your rights. Off defending yourself from every time someone insults you or offends you. You must stop building Satan's kingdom by ceasing to build your own. Die to yourself so that you can see Jesus as He really is, as He actually is. The most glorious, wise, strong, worthy person to stand next to no matter what it costs you to stand next to Him. Stop defending yourself. Stop promoting yourself on social media so that you will know God, so that others will know God when they see Him in you. Don't harden your heart. Don't call Him crazy or demonize just so you can feel justified by your own desires. This happens all the time when we start taking things that we know to be true in God's Word and we hide them or we deny them. Listen, we are different. We are different than the world around us. So, love them so as they see these differences, they will see there's something different about you. I want to know more about that. Make yourself small to get close to Jesus. Or as Dallas Willard puts it, he says, self-denial or being dead to self is a condition where the mere fact that I do not get what I want does not surprise or offend me and has no control over me. Don't get bent out of shape when people scoff at your me-we posts. It's not about you anyways. Making yourself small means that in your eyes, you see others around you much more clearly than you see, than you see yourself. Now listen, I understand. This takes some doing. And the only way you'll do it is by constantly looking to the cross. By constantly thinking about the cross. By reminding yourself morning, noon, and noony night about the cross. It takes constantly reminding yourself that Jesus won your battles for you. And therefore the only thing you really need to be concerned about is the cross. And going to the cross. Being washed at the cross. Back to Jesus' point. Jesus 
I'm paraphrasing, says, hey, if I'm really casting out demons, if what you are seeing is really happening, then what you are claiming right now is foolishness. Jesus is reasoning with them. He's helping them think. He says it's grasping for straws. In fact, it's worse than that. You're not just wrong. You're criminally negligent in your accusations. Jesus is telling them you should know better. You, spiritual leaders, should you have a duty to know better and you're neglecting your duty. And that's exactly where he goes in verses 28-30. through He says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. So here we are. We've come to one of the most looked at passages in all of Mark's Gospel. The unforgivable sin. So we want to know. What what is it that is so bad that it cannot be forgiven? Now our first clue is that the people who apparently committed this sin were saying he has an unclean spirit. Another clue that we need to take seriously in understanding what this sin is, is the opposition that Jesus was facing at that very moment. He had clearly healed or cleansed someone of demonization. His enemies were the ones who said, by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. Note, there's no argument They agree Jesus is, in fact, casting out demons. Now, if there was ever a work of God, it is the freeing of a human being from the Satan's suffocating grasp. And to give credit to Satan for a work that is most clearly God the Spirit's is in fact, blasphemy. It is taking the truth and intentionally turning it upside down. Jesus, or excuse me, Isaiah talks about this kind of, kind of sin where in Isaiah 5.20 he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. <laughs> of course, This happens every day on every social media platform. And the only way to combat that kind of foolishness is by speaking and typing the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15 It is relentlessly going in a loving manner, in a joyful willingness to sacrifice, not think so much about yourself and what you look like on Facebook or MeWe or Instagram, and sacrificing for their good by loving them instead of mouthing off and vomiting whatever garbage it is that, that, that your political party or your church is going after at that moment. But now we need to talk about blasphemy. We need, we need to understand what blasphemy is. Blasphemy is defiant hostility to God. 
In Leviticus 24, we get the best example. We see there a story of a young man who disrespects God. He, he didn't just disrespect God. He contemptuously used the Lord's name. And it wasn't just a matter of saying some words. This man was executed by Israel, not for some one-time act, but we see clearly in the story that the brazenness of his attitude shows that this was a settled character. This was who he was. He does not care about Yahweh, and it doesn't matter. He consciously defied the Lord in order to lead those who were around him away from God. That's key. It's a settled character, consciously choosing to lead God's people away from him. Similarly, in Mark's case, the blasphemy that the religious leaders were speaking was far more than merely verbal. It is a rejection at the bottom of one's heart. These leaders of Israel sought to lead the people away from Jesus. They rejected God's work and they attributed God's work through Jesus to Satan. And their rejection, as we have seen already, he had five controversy stories, and there's going to be a bunch more coming throughout Mark. His, their rejection of Jesus is persistent, and it is willful. They know what they're doing, and they're doing it on purpose, and they're doing it over and over and over again. So these leaders of Israel, these trained theologians, were responsible to know God and His Word such that they should have recognized Jesus. They were culpable in their ignorance because they did not want to see Jesus as God the Son who was at that very moment invading Satan's kingdom, who at that very moment and this is invading you and me. And he is demonstrating by his words and by his deeds that he is more powerful than our strongest enemy. Eliana and I love reading missionary biographies and the one that we're about to finish is called And the Word Came with Power. It's a, the story about a Wycliffe missionary actually who comes from Paso Robles. Her name was uh, Joanne Shetler. If you want to read a story that will encourage your heart in every way, it's called, And the Word Came with Power. Buy it and devour it. You will be encouraged. But back to our unforgivable sin. Back to understand that denying the power of God, the work of God through the person of Jesus is unforgivable. The unforgivable sin is this. The knowing, persistent, willful declaration to others that the clear work of God is actually the work of Satan. The unforgivable sin is the knowingly leading of your near ones away from Jesus. It is the building of your own kingdom instead of the one that will last forever. Jesus' kingdom. One last thing. 
if you are concerned about having committed the unforgivable sin, then you haven't committed it. No one so brazen and persistent and conscious of their rejection of Jesus will be concerned that they are so brazen and persistent and conscious in their rejection. Now, the opposite of the unforgivable sin, the opposite of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to make yourself small so that you can get close to Jesus. Make yourself small so that you can get close to Jesus. It is the cross that will make you, let you get small. The cross means two things. The cross means you are in great need. You are in great peril. And there's nothing you can do about it. There is no strength. There is no money. There is no fame. None of it will avail you. You are helpless and you are in great danger. That's the first thing the cross means. The other thing that the cross means is that God has done something about it. Jesus paid the penalty that you could not pay. The death that you owe because you sinned. He took God's anger towards you away from you on the cross so that you wouldn't have to. Nothing, nothing in all the world will at the same time make you feel small and insignificant because there's nothing you can do. And at the exact same time will make you feel wonderfully loved and made much of until you properly think about the cross of Jesus. Every day, in your mind, go to the cross and remember, I am small. I am small because there's nothing I can do for my own sins. And then you will be close to Jesus and you will realize how much He has done for you. And you will rejoice. Now, we're eating a sandwich after all, so we're going to get to the bread on the other side of the sandwich. We're going to get back to Jesus' family and we're going to see the contrast that Mark intends for us to understand as I read verses 31 to 35. Jesus' mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Jesus answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mothers and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, put yourself mentally, use your sanctified imagination and put yourself in the situation of Jesus' family of origin. If the leaders of your religious and political community accuse you of being demonized, or if the leaders of your religious and political community 
accuse your son or brother of being demonized, then you're going to expect some serious opposition. You're going to expect perhaps that opposition will lead to death. So, if you are a loving family member, you would do whatever it takes, whatever is necessary, to stop this insanity. You might even go try to seize your brother by force and imprison him at home to keep him from being stoned to death by the authorities. At least, that's what Jesus' brothers told themselves. It's amazing what lies we can say to ourselves and then believe them forever. Let's read that. 31-32, And his mother and his brothers came standing outside. They said to him, they sent to him and called to him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. By the way, the older I'm getting, the more I realize that harshness, willfulness in correcting a brother or sister is simply the wrong thing to do. Unless you're stopping a violent act against someone, there's simply no room for the arrogant, heavy-handedness that Jesus' family was attempting here. Gentleness. Reasoned. Loving. Joyful willingness to sacrifice for the good of those near you. That's how you help people change. But we have a question. Didn't Mary know? She, she should have known certainly what was going on. Why was she there? Well, perhaps Mary was there to stand between her potentially violent sons and her firstborn. Perhaps Mary was there because she too had forgotten what she had thought about when Jesus was born. Perhaps Mary was there because she too was prone to doubt and fear. And she collapsed as her other sons planned to rescue Jesus. But we need to get ourselves small if we're to get close to Jesus. Jesus' family couldn't get there near Him. And Jesus is not confused. Jesus is loving his mother and his brother, and Jesus certainly meant no disrespect. Verse 33, Jesus answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my mother and my brother and sister and mother. Here's the punchline. Here is that thick-cut honey ham with deli mustard and lettuce, tomato, onion, avocado. Here's the meat of the sandwich we are eating here. The opposition to Jesus aligned themselves against him. You're crazy. You're demonized. But for those who seek to know and then live by the will of God, 
That person is as close to Jesus as if we had been his mother or sister or brother. Make yourself small to get close to Jesus. Make yourself small. Get close to the cross. And remember how small you are. And then remember how big Jesus is. There is a cost to living the supernatural kind of life. You must make yourself small. To stand next to Jesus, you need to put yourself into the right perspective. It doesn't matter how many people mock your beliefs on Facebook. It's not about you anyways. To stand next to Jesus, you must recognize that your britches really ain't that big. You must understand that the world does not revolve around you and you're not going to convince everybody on Facebook by your brilliant comebacks. You might, though, if you're brilliantly loving them, offering them reason mixed with love. No, the world does not revolve around you. And that, after all, is the absolutely necessary revelation you're going to have if you're going to be an adult. To be close to Jesus, not to be guilty of an eternal sin, not to be guilty of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is to be small. To make much of Jesus and not your circumstances. To make much of the cross and not your own thoughts. To make much of the cross and not your own ideologies. That is how you help others to see that Jesus is great and we can trust Him. You can trust Him. And Jesus, we come before You because there is nowhere else to go. And yes, we must reason with our brothers and we must cling to that cross. You showed us how to reason. You showed us how to love. Let us do that on whatever platform we have available to us so that you, you will be exalted. You will be glorified. And so that we will rejoice and so that your kingdom will grow. Bless us, Jesus, so that we will be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.